Are you getting tired of social isolation? Me too. Good thing we can reach out to discuss baseball with Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. And that's just what we're going to do next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 20th. It's show number 15 of the 2020 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday news and comment edition for you. We'll have our League Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols covers the National League, including a dark horse for saves in Philadelphia, possible changes in bullpens in Milwaukee and St. Louis, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including rotations in the American League West, adjusting injury expectations, Marcus Semyon, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Alex Becky looks at Tampa shortstop prospect Wander Franco. And in the three-minute warning, I'll be talking about a way we could have a regular fantasy season starting on the original opening day. It's another big Friday news and comment edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Yeah, we're all hunkered down, but we are going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday news and comment edition, our player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League news. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. How are you making out with the uh, sequestration that all of us are undergoing because of the uh, COVID and we're all trying to stay out of each other's uh, business? How's that going for you? It's going all right. We're, su- we're surviving so far. Yeah, same same here. Uh, you go out and buy some groceries and that's about it. But it's uh, very ghost towny every, everywhere I go. Uh, there's no cars. I was in the mall the other day because I had to pick up some glasses that I had ordered and uh, there's nobody in the mall. It's eerie, you know. It's kind of like one yeah. of those movies uh, of the future where people are wandering around uh, in downtown New York but everybody left <laughs> because of some right. disease or yeah. something. Yeah, it, it really is. It's very, It's very strange. Yeah, it is very strange. And the few businesses that are open, of course, people are walking around with those hospital masks on. And uh, the, in the glasses place I was at, the the people who worked there, whoever wasn't dealing with customers, or customer in this case, me, everybody else was rubbing down counters with bleach wipes, like constantly. Uh-huh, yeah. you know, I, would guess as, a, I would guess, especially in a public place like that, that would be yeah, you know, exactly. a, a, a necessity. I just wondered about, you know, it was like employee A would go along the counter and wipe it all down and then move along to the next counter and employee B would come right in behind them and like repeat the process. <laughs> I have to tell you, Nick, it, it seemed more like um, make work, you know, than right, it did. Right, right. I'm probably going to say they probably didn't have anything else to do. So, you know, yeah, right. But I'll tell you one thing, the optician who uh, helped me out, she must have washed her hands with that hand sanitizer probably six times during the interaction like every time she touched any pair of glasses that i touched or this gizmo that they put on to measure your pupil distance and so forth as soon as she was done she'd wash her hands again it was after a while it gets almost insulting like you think what do you think you're dealing with right yeah (laughs) (laughs) that unclean right yeah uh, Yeah, but you know you can't be too careful especially in in businesses like that where you're going to be running into tons of people even in this sort of limited transactional environment that we're in so good for her i say uh, you know maybe uh might be a little hard 
hard on her hands after a while, the skin might get a little irritated, but... You would think. I, <laughs> yeah. Better safe than sorry, yeah, for sure. Well, let's start. Uh, we still have no news to report, I guess, or very little actual news, but we do have lots of coverage at BaseballHQ.com, and... Uh, there's lots more analysis going on than there would be typically at this time of year, but we have time and space to do added analysis, and that's what we're doing. And one example of that, Alanda Leonardis, uh, one of the analysts at BaseballHQ.com who covers the National League East in playing time tomorrow, looked at uh, all those teams in the National League East as far as their pitching, both their rotations and their bullpens. And one of the uh, stories that he came up with out of Philadelphia is that while the Phillies are in good hands with Hector Neris closing their games. There's a dark horse in that bullpen that we might be interested in for saves. There certainly is. It's certainly worth monitoring what's going on there. As, as he says, uh, and as you said, they are in good hands with Hector Neris. His uh, splitter is one of the most effective pitches in baseball, and he leaned on it very heavily in 2019, 65.4% of the time throwing that splitter, uh, and saved 28 games with a very effective numbers. But um, And the Phillies are really thin behind him with uh, – uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez and David Robertson and uh, Tommy Hunter on the shelf. So what what could happen if anything happens to Hector Neris? And uh, none of the pitchers, none of the lefties in the bullpen are uh, are particularly dominant. So the names we're going to focus on as a dark horse probably are, are Nick Pavetta and Vince Velasquez. And, you know, you say, wait a minute, those guys are, are battling for the starting rotation, right? And they're locked in a battle for the fifth spot in the rotation. Uh, and they are indeed, but whichever does not make the rotation could potentially become the most dominant non-Nerish reliever in the pen in Philadelphia. Uh, Pavetta's career numbers as a reliever, 25.2 innings pitched, 4.21 ERA, 26.9% strike rate, 12.6% walks. Velasquez, career numbers as a reliever, 29 innings pitched, 4.66 ERA, 28.1% strikes, 12.5% balls. So they have issues with walks, yes, uh, but they all have, have that would be all the more reason to bring them into a game when the bases are empty, right? Because then they wouldn't have anyone on base that they could, you know, so you, you get the picture. If it were up to the pitchers, and it's not, Pavetta would rather not be a reliever. For uh, He took his demotion to the pen uh, in two, uh, July of 2019 very hard. Whereas Velasquez is on record as saying he'd welcome becoming a closer at some point in his career. He said, I want to be the ninth inning guy. I do think closing would be cool in the future. So could the difference in that disposition make a, make a difference? Well, maybe, who knows? Uh, no way to quantify that, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, and it's certainly possible that one of those two who doesn't make the rotation could wind up as a very strong reliever in the Philadelphia pen. And Nick, it certainly wouldn't be the first time in Major League history that a guy couldn't get into the starting rotation in his team. Usually it's because they don't have enough good pitches. Uh, they, they, you know, a dominant fastball and a decent slider or something like that, but they lack the third pitch, which makes them really vulnerable to the third time through the order and all those penalties that we know about. But if you've got a dominant single pitch or a couple of, uh, one dominant, one, you know, above average pitch, you can make it as a reliever. Mariano Rivera basically threw one pitch his entire career and he, you know, he did pretty well with that. And uh, I think the, the idea that either of these guys could become a, a relief pitcher instead of a starter is pretty interesting. Uh, it, at this point though, doesn't it seem like something of a 
speculative bet. I guess if you're in a draft and you need to make a 45th round pick and Nick Pavetta is probably going to still be there, you might as well, right? Because it doesn't really cost you anything. But I don't know that I'd be real enthusiastic about taking him in the first 23 rounds when I'm actually building my roster. No, I don't think I would either. But the other the other thing to consider is if we get to the point and you've got one of them on your roster and they don't make the rotation, uh, maybe you don't want to drop them immediately. Maybe you want to wait a minute and see exactly what happens to them uh, after that point. I have to say that, especially in Pavetta's case, if he made the rotation, I'd be more likely to drop him because he just doesn't seem to be that good of a rotation pitcher. It hasn't been so far quite a disappointment the last couple of years. And I know there's expert opinion on both sides of this question. The other thing I, I want to bring up is both of these pitchers have be- better numbers as relievers than they did as starters, but these are not outstanding numbers. ERA is over four. Uh, strikeout rates in the 27% range is not super outstanding. Very high walk rates. You mentioned that, 13% each. Um, these are not the kind of uh, of numbers, starter or reliever, that are going to make anybody sit up and take notice. No, they're not. And they're certainly not going to supplant Hector Neris initially as a, as a closer either. So they would only be sort of a fallback position for the Phillies should, uh, should Neris get injured. Moving along, uh, still staying with bullpens, though, uh, Dan Marcus in playing time tomorrow was looking at the National League Central Division, and one of the uh, questions he asked was about the Milwaukee bullpen and specifically how the delay in the opening day and the start of the season and the, and the entire season, for that matter, could affect that pen in Milwaukee. It seems obvious to me that Josh Hader's the guy, but what happens in that Milwaukee pen because of the delay, according to Dan Marcus? You know, at this point, uh, Josh Hader has certainly been the consensus top closer for the entirety of the draft season and, and one of the first closers off the board. Uh, presumption would be that he would serve as Milwaukee's full-time closer at least to start the season, and that seemed reasonable given that Corey Neville is projected to be out until May. But now that we've got the delay of the the, se- the delay to the start of the season, uh, we could see a disappointing save total for Josh Hader. It would be easy to forget that based on his dominance, a 6.9 command, uh, 0.81 whip, uh, 2.57 XERA, 37 saves last season. Prior to his injury, Neville was presumed to be the Brewers', the Brewers closer to begin last season. And before Cactus League action was suspended, Neville was participating in bullpen sessions, uh, causing beat writers to speculate that he may have been able to return to the mound in early May. And given it's now the season doesn't start until May, Neville could be prepared to appear out of the bullpen on or around opening day. And while it's not likely he would immediately return to the mound in the high leverage situations or in the closer's role, could cause a fracture and save opportunities in the Milwaukee bullpen as the season wears on. This isn't to say that Hayter would take a major hit in value. Regardless of role, he's going to provide excellent strikeouts and ratios and isn't likely to be eliminated from the save picture. Uh, but uh, the likes of Aroldis Chapman and Roberto Osuna could actually prove more valuable from a strictly save perspective with uh, Corey Neville on the field earlier in the season than we expected. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with the analysis. And what's interesting to me is it's it's all well and good to say that, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about Josh Hader's value. He's still going to get lots of strikeouts, blah, blah, blah. Listen, if I draft a closer or a guy I think is a closer in round five or round six, you know, in, in that same area as Chapman or Osuna or guys like that, I want saves. Anything that threatens the possibility of the guy racking up the lion's share of the saves in the bullpen 
is to me a cause for concern. Yeah, I know Josh Hader's going to get a million strikeouts, relatively speaking, for a relief pitcher. He may vulture some wins if he's being used in those high leverage situations. The team had really good success with Josh Hader playing that high leverage non-closing role in the past, and the only reason they put him in the closer role was because Knable got hurt and couldn't pitch. And if he's back and he's available for them to be the closer, I think it's going to be very tempting for Milwaukee to look at Josh Hader and say, you know what, we could get back to what we were doing a couple of years ago because it was really working. Right, very definitely. So I, you know, I think there's a, I think that was an excellent analysis. I think there is reason uh, if you've got all three of those relievers sitting there on the board, maybe not to make Josh Hader the first pick ahead of someone like Osuna or, uh, or uh, like a Roldis Chapman. Dan Marcus in that same playing time tomorrow column also looked at the bullpen situation in St. Louis, which has been sort of riled over the last little while because there doesn't seem to be anybody jumping out and taking the taking the job under his wing and running with it, if that's what <laughs> seems like a weird metaphor. Under All of a sudden you have a bird playing football here. I don't know. It doesn't seem to make any sense. But it looks like Giovanni Gallegos is the top option to close, but there are other choices here. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it would appear that uh, Gallegos is the top option to close. He uh, had a breakout season last year, showed the skills necessary to hold down the role very effectively. 3.44 XERA, 17% swinging strike rate, 11.3 DOM. Little really to suggest that he won't be able to repeat that kind of effort. Um, in addition to Gallegos, John Gantz saw a sharp uptick in his usage in high leverage situations, meaning that he could be utilized in the final final inning. Uh, but it has issues with control, 4.6 control, lack of strikeouts, only an 8.1 dom. So probably won't become the team's primary closer. Uh, current layoff could buy some time for Andrew Miller to return to health. Uh, that doesn't mean his skills will follow as he 35 years old, saw his velocity continue to drop last season. Uh, command, XERA, BPV all began to crater last year as well. Uh, a lengthy delay could also open the door for Jordan Hicks accounting for more of the save chances than originally projected. Uh, Hicks was placed on the 60-day DL, returning from Tommy John surgery. Uh, given the general recovery timeline of 12 to 18 months, not likely to be back until July at the earliest. Uh, similarly to Neville, Hicks uh, should not expect to immediately uh, command save opportunities. But if the start of the regular season gets pushed back far enough, don't forget that Jordan Hicks is coming back from Tommy John surgery. He could return relatively early on in the schedule and might accrue some saves that were uh, speculated on during the draft season. Dan Marcus also mentioned uh, there's a guy named Ryan Helsley who was sort of being talked about or murmured about in the uh, race to earn saves when spring training was underway. But more recently, uh, St. Louis, people who are in St. Louis and analyzing the team looked said that they were looking at him more uh, as a starter than as a reliever. So keep the name Ryan Helsley in the back of your mind, but I don't think he's a, a candidate if you were thinking of that as a dark horse for saves. It would be a really long shot bet, I think, because they do have those other uh, those other options. Uh, Greg Pyron writes a Facts and Flukes column for BaseballHQ.com. Facts and Flukes, of course, is performance validation, where our analysts take a deep dive look at individual players and they assess their performance, especially over the previous year, but using a skills basis, and they try to determine, did this guy's performance last year or when the season actually starts, we'll start looking at in-season performance. And the question is, 
is the performance that we're looking at valid based on the skills metrics that we usually apply at baseballhq.com? These guys do a terrific job in these facts and flukes things. I love these columns because they dig into individual players. And uh, Greg was looking at some National Leaguers, and one of the guys he looked at said uh, was a Ross Stripling of the Dodgers. And Greg Pyron's conclusion about Ross Stripling is that we don't know if he's going to be a starter, some kind of bulk innings guy. We don't know what his role is going to be. But Greg Pyron says whatever his role is, he's going to have value. Yeah, Ross Stripling has been a favorite of Ron Chandler's all through the preseason, too. And anybody that Ron Chandler likes, I tend to take a close look at. Actually had Stripling on two teams last year and was very happy with his performance. Put up a 3.45 ERA, 1.15 whip, 9.2 dominance over 91 innings pitched last year, and was shuffling between the rotation and the bullpen. Um, so inter, inter spring training, battling for a role in the rotation. And as you said, underlying skills really worthy of attention, uh, top tier control backed up by ball rate. So look for that co- to continue control of 2.0 last year. Uh, very, very good. Uh, swinging strike rate slipped a tick, uh, to back to major league average for starting pitchers. Velocity was down a little compared to 2019, but he had some injuries, a right biceps tendonitis that sidelined him for about a month. Uh, that might've, uh, Helped his velocity slip just just a little bit. Uh, Four-seam fastball drew fewer fewer swings and misses last year uh, as his uh, swinging strike rates on the pitch fell from 9% to 6%. But he upped his usage of the curveball 22% to 28%, and that got a 16% swinging strike rate. And his changeup up usage from 11% to 15%, an 18% swinging strike rate. So clearly a guy who knows what you, what you, what pitches are most effective uh, and began using them more. And a good ground ball, ground ball tilt in this kind of crazy home run environment, 50% ground ball rate last year. Uh, and also very effective against left-handed batters. Uh, 6.53 OPS, 3.7 command, and 771 plate appearances. So manager Dave Roberts announced in, on March the 9th that Stripling would not be in the opening day starting rotation. And certainly that that rotation is rich for the Dodgers. They've got plenty of plenty of candidates, and that means he'll start the season in the bullpen, barring a trade or an injury. Skills indicate that he can provide fantasy value even out of the bullpen, uh, and there are durability issues, certainly with a D health grade. Uh, that's a concern, but worth rostering. The current ADP of 307, uh, our adage has always been draft skills, not roles. This guy has skills, and certainly worth drafting a real bargain, I think, at a 307 ADP. He does look like a, a bargain, I, I have to say. And, and when you look at the other guys in that rotation, um, Bueller's pretty solid health-wise, but uh, Kershaw has had back trouble the last couple of years. David Price has had all kinds of health trouble the last couple of years. Alex Wood, uh, so far penciled in as the fifth guy. He's had injury problems. And then you're looking at Dustin May, who's a, a very young pitcher who's also had some health issues. Uh, Tony Gonsolin's a candidate. I think there's a very real possibility here when you talk about the Dodgers because of their what they've been doing the last few years, is that it's not going to be a five-man rotation. It's going to be maybe a seven- or eight-man rotation with Bueller getting more than his share and Kershaw getting uh, more than his share, like more than one-seventh of the opportunities because of their sta- status and because of their skills and stuff. 
But I think the rest of it is kind of an open book and uh, between health, inconsistency, and the Dodgers' willingness to give guys extra days off. Remember, they used to use the 10-day DL, or IL, I guess they call it now, but they were willing to use the injured list to get guys off the roster and just give them a break for a while. Ron Chandler, you mentioned, uh, talks about Ross Stripling very favorably. And I remember talking to Ron, and, and one of the things he said was, People say you shouldn't draft player X or player Y because there's not a path to playing time. And Ron Chandler said, that's crazy. There's always a path to playing time. There's inconsistency, and of course there's injuries. There's all kinds of of circumstances that arise that create paths to playing time for all kinds of players. And that if you can't see Ross Stripling getting, you know, 12 starts this year, you're not looking very hard. Yeah, you know, and as you just said, there's especially a path to playing time or a path to starts with uh, with uh, the Dodgers, the way they use their starting pitchers. So I could see Ross Stripling getting a very significant number of starts uh, during the course of the season. And as you said, if he's, if he's pitching out of the bullpen in some kind of swing role or long man role or bulk innings role, he's got the skills that, you know, it's not inconceivable to think of him posting some really good decimals in a reduced but not impractical level of innings and vulturing a bunch of wins. Los Angeles is a really good team. And so if he's in a situation where he comes in in the fifth or the sixth to relieve, gets two, two and a third, three innings in during the middle of the game in a tie game, all of a sudden that Dodgers lineup pounds out some runs, there's a there's an easy win for Ross Stripling. I think that uh, Greg Pyron is right. St- Ross Stripling does have lots of ways he could create value for you. And in that same column, uh, Greg Pyron talked about another guy we don't want to overlook, and who's easy to overlook because of what's happened in the other areas of the team, Ender Inciardi in Atlanta. Yeah, Ender Inciardi is really being overlooked at this point. Got to remember that Ender Inciardi swiped a career-high 28 bases in 2018, uh, hit 265, uh, hit 10 home runs, but then injuries really took up, took away his 2019 season. Just 199 at-bats, had uh, back, hamstring, quadriceps injuries. And that disappointing 2019 campaign and uncertainty about playing time heading into this season uh, sent his, his draft stock all the way down to a 480 ADP. So the question is, is there a buying opportunity at that point? You have to say his skills have not changed much. Uh, struck out a bit more in 2019, but it was a small sample. Possibly the, injury, possibly the injuries played a role in that. A line drive rate held steady. Uh, XBA was pretty much right where it typically has been in the past. Uh, uptick in walk rate for last season, 11% walk rate compared to 7% in 2018. So that means uh, he could get on base more. That has value in OBP leagues. Speed remains above average. His speed has dropped off a little bit in recent years, but what's worth noting is that his stolen base percentage actually improved last season. After swiping 19 bags and 22 attempts back in 2014, successful on just 69% of his attempts, that's put a damper on stolen base capabilities. But last season... uh, that, that that number was up, 78% success in stolen bases. So given his history of uh, subpar uh, power index and uh, only a 28% fly ball rate, 10 to 12 home runs is probably a ceiling there. So what you've got to remember, I think, is that 2019 was really a lost season for NCRD. Uh, battled injuries throughout the year, but skills are still there for him to be a useful fantasy contributor in terms of steals and in terms of batting average. And at this point, it appears that he will receive regular playing time in center field for the Braves. And that gives him quite a bit of profit potential uh, at his current ADP with his, his uh, potential stolen base numbers.
That's the thing, isn't it, Nick? When you're talking about a player and whether you want to think about him for your roster, it isn't what's he going to do. The question you have to ask yourself constantly is, how much is it going to cost me to acquire what he's going to do? And there is a, a... a general idea that you have to amass stats and in very shallow leagues like 12 team mixed and so forth guys like Ender and Ciarte really have to think long and hard because it if he gets 50% of the playing time in the outfield he may not be able to just amass enough plate appearances to get the stolen bases or run scored or whatever it is you're hoping to get from him and the only way to profit is if he goes from uh, 50% of the playing time to 80 or 85% and in that regard we have to realize he's sitting behind Marcelo Zuna. He's sitting behind Ronald Acuna, who's certainly not going anywhere barring injury. And the third, more or less, halftime outfielder is Nick Marcakis. Now, Marcakis is an older guy, maybe maybe a little more prone to injury that would allow Enciarte to enter the to enter the games a little more frequently than currently projected. So uh, it's entirely a cost-benefit analysis at this point. You have to you have to use your crystal ball to determine what's going to happen in the outfield for playing time. But if you assume that Baseball HQ is pretty close to being on the money at 50% of the available playing time in the outfield, all of a sudden you have to ask yourself, is 50% of of a full season enough for me to spend even a 400th round or 400th overall draft pick? Well, it also depends on on your needs on your roster. I mean, uh, certainly I I find in the current environment that, uh, that stolen bases are harder to come by than, than home runs. And so, you know, you begin looking as you get down to the end of your draft, and this is guy is certainly an end of draft kind of pick. Uh, do I have enough stolen bases? Would an additional, uh, an additional uh, 15 stolen bases help me a lot? And certainly NCRD is the kind of guy who can do that without killing your batting average. I guess that's another question. Is expected batting average is always around 275, 280. So from that point of view, there's nothing to worry about. However, he did hit 246 last year in 200 at bats, and 246 is not helping your batting average a lot. In, in today's game, it's not hurting it as much as it used to, but it's certainly not a help. He had seven stolen bases last year in 200 at bats, Nick, which if he got 600 at bats, all of a sudden it's 20 stolen bases. And again, we return back to that question how many at bats is he going? to get and if he lands somewhere in the middle of a, of a season say 300 you're looking at maybe 10 stolen bases which could be a help but it's not a fantastic level of help right uh, absolutely maybe one standings gain point in stolen bases for 10 bags although uh, that may narrow i've heard people say because there's so few of them that it's going to be uh, more impactful to add 10 stolen bases Always fun to think about this kind of stuff, Nick, especially with no games to distract us. We can focus on the abstractions, and it's always a lot of fun to talk with you about them. We'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat for many years here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, we'll have news analysis from the American League with Ray Murphy. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Alanda Leonardis looks at a pitching extravaganza in the National League East, including bullpens in Philadelphia, Nick and I discussed that, and in Washington, as well as the rotations in Atlanta, Miami, and New York. 
In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Brian Rudd looks at five national leaguers, including Ian Happ, Madison Bumgarner, and Francisco Mejia. And Brant Chesser digs deep into five American leaguers, including Luis Arias, Danny Jansen, and Kevin Pillar. In Rotisserie Gaming, Steve Gardner looks at a fantasy season unlike any other, and Brent Hershey recaps his 2020 Tout Wars mixed auction. Those are just a few articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Not just articles, but tools like the player projections that are updated every day, and once the season gets rolling, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, leading indicators for the hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, expert content plus those tools they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business and don't forget promo code patrick at checkout and welcome back to baseball hq radio i'm patrick davitt time now for news from the american league and here with the stories and the analysis is co-general manager and columnist at baseballhq.com ray murphy ray welcome back hello patrick nice to uh talk some baseball amid all of the other nonsense going on in the world yeah and i can hardly wait when uh, major league baseball says to all the players welcome back to the show because uh, i'd like to get that particular show on the road almost more than anything it's driving me crazy not having any sports at all to watch on tv but uh, i had been watching quite a bit of spring training this year because uh, the my schedule allowed me to and i was really enjoying it and then all of a sudden it's gone and you know that old song uh, don't it always seem to go you don't know what you got till it's gone hundred percent. Uh, somebody put a poll on Twitter last week asking if you would trade uh, 10 years of your team not winning a World Series to get baseball started tomorrow. And I was like, not fast enough. Click, 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 click. Absolutely. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're up there in Boston, so you guys have had more than your share over the last 10 years or so. So you can exactly. afford it. Exactly. I've had my share. I can, I, I can handle a drought. <laughs> Boy, can you people ever handle a drought? You guys in the Cubs, uh, what was it, 80, 90 years, and for both of you, the, for the longest time, yeah. So, well, let, let, let's dig in. We don't have news, of course, or there's not much news going on, the occasional um, reassignment to the minors and stuff like that, roster shuffling. But the opportunity, I think, Ray, for Baseball HQ is we're getting uh, still getting columns where the analysts really get to dig in to situations. Uh, we'll talk a little bit later about facts and flukes. This is a sort of performance validation from what happened in 2019 and it's I don't want to call it a blessing, but you have to look for your for your, the the silver lining in any cloud. And one of them, I think, for Baseball HQ is these great analysts that we have now have a little more elbow room to kind of throw themselves into those deeper analyses. Yeah, there's certainly an element of that. You know, it, it's funny. It kind of you know where we are and what we're writing on the site. Reminds me of a little bit of more like what we would write in December and January. Maybe that's because spring training is just sort of, excuse me, opening day is sort of just a, an abstract concept at this point. It's, we don't know, you know, back then it's too far away to actually think about. Now we don't know what it is, so we can't really think about it concretely. Uh, but, but, you know, back then you can do some more, you know, before camps open, you can do some more um, blue sky, you know, white piece of paper. Here's a, you know, as Jock did, here's a deep dive on all of the rotations in the AL West. And then, but you get, when you get into March, you know, there's so much news flowing at you and you're, di- you're digesting and re- getting in re- very much of a reactive mode to the news and to what's changing all the time that you get away from doing that. Um, 
that deep dive and you, you're really just catching what uh, hoping to catch everything that's getting thrown at you by the news sites and the, by the news out of camps every day. So it, 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 this is sort of a reset to more of a, to me at least, a December, January posture where you can do those deep dives and like what like we're looking at here, Jock's uh, look at the AL West rotations was a very good one. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. It, it, the column is called Playing Time Tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com, and this is uh, ordinarily a, on a weekly rotation where the team analysts, the people who look at each individual team and the divisions, uh, really get into the, the nuts and bolts of the various teams in the divisions. Uh, Jock Thompson is uh, the guy who covers the American League West, and uh, as you said, this week he really got into roster developments in those five teams, looking particularly at pitching, uh, both the rotations and the bullpens. It was a really interesting column, and if your draft is yet to be uh, undertaken, th- these are the kind of columns you really should be looking at because there's some great information here. Some interesting names that Jock came up with, uh, and I'd like to start with his home team, the Angels. They had three starters locked into the rotation, uh, assuming that everything had gone to normal, Andrew Heaney, Julio Tehran, and Dylan Bundy. And they winnowed the field a little further for the fourth and fifth slots. They sent Jaime Berea down to AAA. Uh, Griffin Canning, I think we can say, is probably not likely to start anytime soon with that bulky elbow. But that still left quite a number of pitchers uh, battling for those last rotation slots. Uh, Righties, Matt Andrees and Dylan Peters. Lefties, Patrick Sandoval, who's a real big uh, tout favorite this uh, preseason. Jose Suarez. And then Jock came up with another name that I actually hadn't even thought of. How about right-hander Shohei Otani? Yeah, it's a very common question that everybody whose drafts were postponed is asking now. Is say, who are the players, who are the classes of players even who are going to benefit from this delay and this shortened season? And Otani really does have to bubble to the top of the list because – Whatever the season starts at this point, he's going to be final at that sort of magical 18-plus months removed from Tommy John surgery, Mark. Uh, if you remember back to before all the shutdown happened, he was slated to not pitch until it was either mid-May or June 1st or something like that. But now look at it, and that's not going to be when anybody pitches until essentially. So he's among those guys who now we can think about in terms of maybe not a full season's workload because they'll probably back off him a little bit or use him a little less than once every five days, but he's going to be available all year long. So now it it really gets interesting as far as initially we were going to see him as a hitter only for six or eight weeks. And then there were questions about whether he was going to have to like, you know, go to the minors or find some kind of rehab assignment to, stretch out his arm or if he was able to do be able to do that while traveling with the big league team and DHing. But now, you know, whenever the season starts, he's probably going to be pretty close to ready to contribute on both sides of the uh, two-way player coin, which will be very interesting to watch. Uh, you know, this goes to sort of the top of the list of things I'm looking forward to seeing when baseball gets back because Otani's just fun. And not only is he fun to watch, but he's only had a few starts, I think, in the major leagues, nine or ten starts in his whole career. But in those starts, he showed he can really pitch. He has really, really terrific skills. Yeah, I mean, he's rocks that, you know, in that limited work with the Angels two years ago, 
<coughs> excuse me, you know, flashed 97 mile an hour velocity, was striking out 11 guys per nine. Uh, it was only 50 something innings, but he hung up an ERA in you know around 3.3, which you know is ace level kind of stuff. And even if it's only a hundred innings to throw a ballpark number on it, a hundred innings in I, to throw another ballpark number on it, two thirds of a season or something like that is. You know, has a chance to be really valuable. The ceiling on his value basically has been raised quite a bit by the uh, by the news here. Not only eleven strikeouts per nine, but he was only walking a little under four, so he had a command ratio around three. His WHIP was one one six. Um, he he's a really good pitcher, and I, I'm. It was disappointing when we lost him to the Tommy John, uh, and. The fact that he's coming back and he may have an opportunity to to show some of those skills is really interesting, and it's going to be, I think, a, a very interesting thing to watch where he goes in drafts. Because for all of the confidence we have in, uh, you know, you mentioned the eighteen plus months out of Tommy John, for all of the confidence we have because he showed such great skills two years ago in his ten starts at the major league level, it's still something of a coin toss. Oh, sure. It's not a guarantee. And, you know, that's something I want to get into a little bit later when we talk about um, other, you know, other, other players, other classes of players whose value is improved by the shortened season. There are guys like Otani who are were even back if you were drafting in January were risk reward kind of plays and the you know and the calculus the risk versus the reward may have shifted a little bit toward, toward the reward side but for sure the risk still exists and then there are other you know the, <laughs> there are other players where that's the case and there are other players where you can sort of expect them to have a clean bill of health by late May or early June which is you know it, which is a, a different calculus altogether but for sure you're right we're not we don't we don't mean to say that the risk on Otani is eradicated. It's just not. Jock also mentioned some of the uh, other pitchers that are competing for these spots. He likes Matt Andres the best just because he has the most experience. But Jock also suggested they could go with some kind of six-man rotation. Uh, I wonder if they're looking at possibly doing the opener and, uh, and bulk innings type guys for some of these pitchers who don't have the experience. Uh, Sandoval and Suarez have flirted with top 100 prospect lists recently and have some long-term upside. But uh, the one thing that a lot of teams are going to be reckoning with, I think, Ray, and I I wondered this about guys like Nate Pearson and Matt Manning in the American League, is can the the teams afford to roll the dice on these young pitchers in a two-thirds length season because their impact will be magnified, but the risk will be magnified too because every blown start or real disastrous outing has a has an outsized effect on the on the race because there's fewer games left to, in which you can make it up. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. You know, you, you get to the point where every game is worth two games or a game and a half or a game and a third or whatever in terms of a regular of a traditional season. And you know, with with every effect magnified, you're going to see, uh, you know, some teams, you know, were you know not willing to 
take the risk or not willing to be as patient with young people who are transitioning to the majors and sort of taking their lumps for the first month or whatever, because that's as bad as taking your lumps for two months. But there'll be other teams like, you know, I, even in a shortened season, I don't think Detroit's a real contender. So whatever the, their plan was for Manning and Mize, they can probably go off and stick to that plan. Uh, one other thought that I've had that might, you know, probably fits the Angels as well as anybody else is you think about the when we come back, we're going to have a short spring training, I'm sure, to get every, get the pitcher stretched out again. But similar to, I think it was 1995 when they had the short spring training and then did expanded rosters uh, for the month of April. I think you'll see that again. And pitchers aren't going to be stretched out yet. So in this age of openers, I think you're going to see you know, the first couple of weeks of the season, whenever it starts, you're going to see all pitchers only being limited to you know three or four innings. And... I'm wondering how many teams are going to find out that that model works pretty well and going with you know, waves of pitchers for three innings at a time or piggyback starters or that sort of thing that they might have to do for the first two to three weeks of the season. They may find out that in some situations that the Angels are a great candidate for that with guys like you were mentioning earlier, Andres and Berea and Peters and Sandoval and Otani, that maybe they just kind of stick with that model. That, that That is an interesting thing that I've been wondering about myself. And, of course, the only question is uh, how many pitchers – I think they're maxed at 13 pitchers. Uh, there may be an expansion of the rosters in the early going, but that kind of model is easier to run if you've got you know 30 guys on the roster, including 18 pitchers, versus 26 guys on the roster and 13 pitchers. It calls for a bit more uh, – careful managing of workloads and stuff like that and planning out when guys are going to pitch. The flip side of that, though, it seems to me is if you know that you're going to be going three innings a starter twice through the lineup every time you appear in a game, you can appear more often. Right, exactly. We, we've seen ex- examples of this before with what the you know the Rockies tried to do with their rotation a couple of years ago, and you know, certainly it's a model that I, um, I know the Astros and some other teams have used in the minors for these guys coming up. So yes, it'll be much easier to do for the first month or however long the rosters are expanded for, and then it might get a little more difficult. On the other hand, if you project you know arbitrarily a June 1st start date and say rosters are going to be expanded for a month, that gets you to July 1st. And assuming they still have an all-star game and an all-star break, then you're a week away from the All-Star break by July 1st, and it's not too hard to jigger things around and you know, around the All-Star break, get everybody freshened up, and before you know it, it's you know July 25th or something before your rotation's even you know taxed from trying to use this model. And, of course, one other option or possibility that exists uh, is when Major League Baseball c- does come back, depending on how shortened the season has been, they may negotiate with the Players Association to get more games into the time that's available to them, which means fewer off days, you know, more seven-day weeks, more more double headers, and those kinds of things to try to increase the game count because that's where the money comes from. And that would throw a kind of a monkey wrench into the works as well because as we think about it, we kind of go with the idea of, okay, you know, they, they play six games some weeks, seven games other weeks. Sometimes they have two day off days and stuff like that. It's got that rhythm to it, but uh, the rhythm could be a lot more frantic if the if Major League Baseball and the Players Association agree we need to just cram, uh, you know, what we used to do uh, into a much tighter space. 
So we're going to try to get 148 games in the space that we normally would have thrown 128 games. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. I would imagine I am not the head of the Players Association, but if I were, I would think that the obvious compensation for that would be to keep the rosters expanded all year. If you're going to play literally eight games a week, then we're going to have 28 or 30-man rosters for the entire stretch so that, that, that pretty reasonably gets you back to a situation where all the players are only playing a regular workload, but you know, with days off, it's you know, back ends and doubleheaders, et cetera, that you're spreading out the spreading out the workload a little bit more. So, you're right. Um, we're speculating because we don't actually know the rules we're going to be playing under, which I always find frustrating. But uh, hopefully, we'll get some clarity soon. Yeah, I suspect we won't get any clarity until they actually have an opening day that they can count on, uh, and we'll have to wait until then to see. And it's going to be, it is frustrating, but it also is going to be very interesting to see how fantasy owners react to the new rules, and and there'll be a spate of articles coming out at Baseball HQ, I'm sure, in the gaming spaces about uh, how to strategize for the new reality of the 2020 season, and I'm really looking forward to that part of it as well, because it's interesting to think about. Uh, back to Jock Thompson and his uh, American League West. The delay, Jock reports, is also helping the outlook for rising young lefty A.J. Puck. He looked out of the running because the club said he had uh, what they called a mild left shoulder strain. But a significant delay, Jock Thompson reports, would seem to give him plenty of time to work himself back into a full-time rotation slot. Yeah, Puck certainly falls into the category of guys who benefit from the delay here. And really, it seems to me that that whole Oakland rotation does with, uh, <clears throat> you know, Puck not the only young, you know, Puck was actually injured, but then, you know, his uh, young prospect twin, if you will, uh, Jesus Lazardo was, you know, queued up for the rotation to start the season, but was widely expected to have a pretty hard innings limit up around, you know, we didn't know the exact number, but probably something in the 120 to 130 innings range, and that might—that's going to be much closer to a full season's workload now. So, great news for Luzardo. And then you had Sean Manaya, who's coming. You pitched last September after missing most of the season, the entire season before that, and you know they have a bunch of interesting arms who. What, but what they lack is the workhorse, the Garrett Cole, Verlander, Scherzer, DeGrom, you know, 200-plus inning workhorse. But, you know, for Oakland and really any other team that doesn't have that, you know, this is sort of a leveling of the playing field. And they have Chris Bassett as well if Puck can't go or if they decide to go with some kind of six-man rotation or some kind of rolling starter type of thing. They they don't lack for options. The, the problem, I think, as you've correctly identified, is nobody here really stands out as the guy who can be your stopper, the guy who you can count on to stop a losing streak or to give you a really great start every time he goes out there. But I think it's possible Montas and Lozardo, as young as they are, might work out to be those kind of pitchers in the truncated season because they can go a little more all out in the shorter term. And as you said, they're going to pile up way more innings than we were expecting. Yeah, that's uh, you, you mentioned Montas, but he absolutely belongs in this conversation. And really, if you think about it, of, you know, just in terms of, you know, fractions over the course of a season, if a 162-game season with Puck already hurt before the shutdown, you know, you probably could have taken Puck and Luzardo and Montas and taken the three of them together and thought, 
if you had two of them in your big league rotation at any given time, you were going to be you know, that was probably the best they could hope for between innings limits and pucks already already being injured and you know just workload concerns. But now in a you know, pick a, again, pick a number, two thirds of a season or something like that. It's entirely possible that all three of those guys could be in the rotation right from the get go and be able to carry more or less a full starter's workload in the full season. And that's great news for Oakland because these guys are much more skilled than Mike Fires and even Bassett. You know, those guys are no slouches and they're going to have to f- fill out the back of the rotation. But in terms of having a stopper emerge, it was going to be from one of those three kids, and now they're going to be able to rely on all three of those kids for a more, a significantly bigger percentage of the team innings for the season. I think that's the key, Ray, that the percentage of innings available to those good young pitchers is a real help to fantasy owners, but I think it's also a help to the team because maybe it cuts down on the innings that they have to give to guys like Mike Fires, who's pretty reliably been a workhorse, but he's also been pretty reliably not that great of a workhorse. He had a pretty good last couple of years, and we can't discount that, but he's also had some clunkers in the years before that. Uh, Jock Thompson, I should point out, also says that we need to keep an eye on the Oakland rotation in AAA. A couple of right-handers, Grant Holmes and James Capriellian, will be attempting to come back. They've had injuries themselves, but they're very uh, high-quality prospects. Moving to Seattle, Jock says the rotation looks like it has two guys for sure, lefties Marco Gonzalez and Yusei Kikuchi. Uh, and he, he makes a comment that, you know, if that's the top two guys in your rotation, you're already in trouble. Uh, but Jock Thompson also reports that things have gotten interesting in part because of the reclamation project involving former top Mariners prospect Taiwan Walker. Yeah, Walker was someone who I think I talked about in this segment, you know, a month or so ago when he was still a free agent. I think it was right after the... Uh, Mookie Betts trained to the Dodgers that I was saying the Red Sox needed started pitching and Walker was you know one of the interesting options left on the free agent market and he ended up in Seattle and in terms of Walker making a choice as a free agent you really couldn't fi- find a better spot for him to go to try to reestablish his value in his career because as Jock says there were jobs and innings readily available here for anybody who wants to take the ball. And what you know, the better news was that when he got into camp, he was a little bit delayed, or they were working with him on the side, and you know, there were it wasn't even clear to me whether they were sort of planning on having him ready for the for next week's opening day. He had thrown three innings in the spring, but had four, but three innings, four strikeouts, no walks, no runs, which was you know, so a couple of clean one, two inning outings. Uh, so he may not have been ready to start on opening day, but, you know, this is another case where you give him six or eight weeks to just continue getting, strengthening himself. And he's a pretty interesting rotation option come May, June. Jock also mentioned that they were getting a couple of solid springs, albeit in limited innings, from a couple of other touted rookies, uh, lefty Justice Sheffield and righty Justin Dunn. What do we think of those guys? Sheffield's pretty interesting. I, I threw some late darts at him in drafts this winter because, you know, it appeared that he figured something out after taking his lumps in the minors most of last season. Uh, you know, even a combination of late in the season in the minors and then in September in Seattle, he he sort of re, he seemed to rediscover the swing and miss in his arsenal and was, uh, you know, st- starting, you know, his velocity had upticked and his, uh, 
you know, it was, he, I think he had changed the tilt on his slider. Or there was some mechanical change along those lines. Um, and he, in the early returns, he had very much carried that over this spring. It was actually a new, uh, this spring, it was a new two-seam fastball he was working with that I think, I, now that I think about it, I think it was a two-seam fastball was the change and the way that played off the slider was the benefit. But uh, in eight innings this spring, he had had 12 strikeouts, no walks, and two runs allowed, which for... You know, some of those launching pad parks in the Cactus League is, you know, pretty darn strong as much as you can get excited about eatings of work. But, you know, again, opportunities abound in Seattle. Sheffield's, you know, the, the closest thing they have to a future jewel of their rotation. But the returns here early on were pretty encouraging. So, yeah, I'm interested in seeing what happens with him when we get going again. And I'm kind of happy that I threw some late. Some uh, some some late round darts at him in drafts this spring. Justin Dunn's also interesting. Uh, you know, he also was acquitting himself decently in seven or eight spring innings. He had ten strikeouts and three walks. Uh, you know, he was probably ticketed for the minors to start anyway. And now that Walker is going to be ready come start of the season, I think that's even more likely. But certainly, if you're the Mariners. Dunn and Sheffield and Walker, who have, you know, among the three of them, some actual upside are much more exciting to think about than Gonzalez and Kikuchi and Kendall Graveman, who really are just bulk innings at this point. Yeah, Jock made that point. If the number five starter standing in your path is Kendall Graveman, uh, boy, you don't really have too much standing in your path. Uh, Moving along, uh, one of the columns that's also benefiting, and we've talked about it in theory here, is Matt Cedarholm's Big Hurt column. He was analyzing situations that could change because of the delayed start, uh, primarily players who get more recovery time, but there are also the reverse, I guess, is also true that uh, there's going to be players who looked like they were going to get a lot of playing time and might not because of the recovering players. Uh, Before we get into particular names, though, Ray, Matt made an important point about the coronavirus itself, COVID-19, the illness, those kinds of things. I thought Matt made some interesting points about this part of the landscape. What uh, What was his take on this whole situation? Yeah, it's interesting because this is a situation that you know, nationally, even now within the context of sports, we're learning more about. And, you know, Matt's point here, which is quite correct, is that, you know, we've obviously seen the infections among the NBA players, and there's at least one Yankees minor leaguer who we know have tested positive. But in general, this population of professional athletes, they're younger and they're better in physical condition. They're certainly primed to recover well from this. Um, But you still have to plan on you know, certainly a quarantine period and then a little bit of time to recuperate after that where maybe they're not 100% or need to get back in shape or whatever. Uh, And and so, you know, even a player who gets an infection is going to, you know, there's going to be some material impact on the shorter season for them. And actually the, the point that Matt didn't make, but that I've been reading in the news even sort of since then is that, in some cases, you can get the virus, get over, you know, seemingly get over it and be back to full strength, but you can still be testing positive for it. We don't necessarily understand, I don't think yet, how long somebody who has it is actually contagious for. So I think we've got to look at the possibility that anybody, who, any player who gets it could be quarantined for a good long time, and that might be 
enough to material impact their season too. Yes, and those are dice rolls that we're taking on every player. This is not something that's particular to player A or player B because once somebody gets the infection, there's still a lot of unanswered questions in the medical community about, especially as you as you said, Ray, the idea of how long are you contagious once you have the virus in your system. And I've heard or read everything from you're, you're contagious basically from the instant you have it and and are not symptomatic through the symptomatic period and then afterwards they don't know and and if that's the case then you'd you'd sure hate to have a situation where you're bringing guys together into a locker room even if you leave the fans out of it to play just play the game in, in empty stadiums that's fine but these guys are crammed together in locker rooms and major league locker rooms are pretty big but they're still not big enough because of the enclosed nature of them and maybe they could make allowances for that too but all you need is one guy to to reacquire the virus which they'd say maybe is possible that the immunity is not well understood or to keep the virus even after he gets post-symptomatic and still be a risk to all the other players. And the next thing you know, you're just, you're sort of repeating it over and over again, where the virus keeps sweeping through these locker rooms. And and we see that it happens. We've had flu in the past where, uh, you know, half of a team's uh, players are under the weather with some kind of virus that they probably got in the locker room environment. So there's that possibility as well that we have to consider. Yeah, locker rooms are you know, a petri dish for this stuff. And let's not forget that these guys are all on planes together a couple of times a week, which is another, you know, optimal environment for those sorts of uh, germs to get passed around. So, yeah, there's a lot of considerations here for sure. Well, there were some winners that Matt identified, and he says the one clear winner, Cleveland right-hander Mike Clevenger. What's the story there? Yeah, I don't know if you were as desperate for baseball as I was, Patrick, but I actually watched uh, Trevor Bauer's live stream Sandlot game last week, and Clevenger was out there and pitching and, you know, running over to cover first base from the mound and all that, and he looked just fine. So based on that, you know, professional medical opinion, I'm going to call Clevenger ready to go for opening day. But it, but in serious, in all seriousness, uh, you know, there, there are a couple of different categories of injuries and players who were hurt that... We, we, we should differentiate here. Clevenger's in sort of the easiest category where we knew exactly what the injury was. The injury, you know, in his case was a torn meniscus that had already been repaired. And essentially the reason he was going to miss opening day was just that he wasn't going to be stretched out enough, that he wasn't going to be able to get enough innings in the spring because he was delayed from the surgery. That's no longer an issue or to put it the other way, it's no no more of an issue for him than it is for anybody else now because he'll be ready to throw fully when camps reopen and he'll have the same two or three weeks spring training as everybody else. So he'll be on a level playing field and as stretched out as anybody else when opening day comes around, barring any further setbacks. On the flip side of that, however, Carlos Carrasco, also in Cleveland, he's uh, had some issues not only with the cancer, but uh, he's had a cortisone injection in his elbow because of inflammation. The original announcement was a shutdown for a few days. Uh, Matt is much less optimistic about Carlos Carrasco than he was about Clevenger. What's the story there? Yeah, so this, these guys fall into a, a sort of a second category here. Carrasco falls in there. I think Chris Sale does. Uh, you know, on the far end of the spectrum, I think the least, the, the one I'd be most worried about is someone like Griffin Canning. But these are all guys who had arm discomfort of, you know, some 
degree or you know some precision you might have you know i think sale was a flexor tendon strain uh carrasco just sort of had generic discomfort but they gave him a cortisone injection to try to calm it down and in all of these cases they were you know they may have been projected for to be shut down for a few weeks and then restart their throwing program or whatever but the we're not going to know much or we can't you know Going back to our example from earlier, you know, with Otani, you know, the risk reward is still, you know, the risk very much remains here. Where until these guys pick up a ball and start throwing again and ramp up their activity, we're not really going to know if the prescribed rest or cortisone injection or you know arm strengthening exercises or whatever these guys were doing were effective. And just because they were put on a mid-May timeline back in late February or early March doesn't mean that when mid-May comes around, they're good to go necessarily in the same way that we can say Clevenger is very likely to be good to go. A less clear situation, Giancarlo Stanton, uh, he had a calf strain, but it was fairly minor. It was considered fairly minor and they didn't think he was going to miss that much time. And he's now he's going to have all the time he needs to recover from the calf strain. But Matt Cedarholm says, uh, don't, don't jump out and immediately think that, that Giancarlo Stanton is entirely out of the woods. Yeah, and his reminder there, which is still very, um, very prescient from him, is sure the calf strain itself probably isn't going to be anything that is hampering him when he comes back to camp. But the calf strain is also just a, the latest in a long string of injuries, and there's a reason he carries an F health grade. And the fact that he came, you know, if you know, Matt didn't say this directly, but the fact that he came to camp and immediately had a calf strain sort of has, to, has you wondering what the next. Uh, what the next domino is to fall. We haven't seen him stay healthy even in a spring training situation for a number of weeks to get ready for the season. And, but, so, you know, the, the overall cloud of health around Stanton, you know, should continue to give people pause at the draft table, even though the calf strain itself may not be significant enough to keep him out of the opening day lineup. Yeah, the uh, official injury update that we had at BaseballHQ.com is a projection to return when the league finally starts back up. So the the initial or surface level thinking is go ahead and draft Giancarlo Stanton because he's good to go. But uh, as you said, Giancarlo Stanton, good to go, not always good to keep going, I guess is the question. He's not the Energizer Bunny. Uh, finally, Ray, analyst Bob Berger had an interesting facts and flukes column this week uh, with no actual news happening. As I mentioned at the outset of our discussion, and Facts and Flukes is getting an extended opportunity to look at these players in depth. Uh, makes great reading, uh, not only for the individual players, but uh, to get into the heads of our analysts and start thinking in the way that, that, that they do and looking at the things they look at. Bob looked at five American leaguers. Uh, one of the guys he mentioned was Oakland shortstop Marcus Semyon. And of course, the question with Semyon is, can he repeat anything like last year's breakout? 33 homers, 10 stolen bases. He batted 285. He was actually uh, an MVP candidate a lot of people thought, got some votes. Uh, the question that Bob asked and answered is, can he repeat? Yeah, it's uh, Semyon's breakout season, as you say, was really just amazing last year. Uh, you know, had gone from 15 homers, 19 stolen bases in 2018 to, to 33, excuse me, 15 and 14 in 2018 to 33 homers and, you know, doubled into stolen bases again with, and really the most impressive thing about it might have been that, he, you know, he, sp he spiked the batting average at the same time. And when you see the batting average and a power jump concurrently, the natural, I mean, you know, my natural inclination is to get excited. And, 
from a Spiel's perspective, there is a lot of reason to get excited. Both the home runs and the batting average were well supported by the underlying skills. That doesn't mean that we're, we can just pencil them in for a repeat, though, and this has been a point that we've been making, you know, I think we made it in the baseball forecaster, and Bob's echoing it here, that you have to be a little bit careful just because so much of the value here, even from a skills perspective, was driven by enormous playing time and enormous counting stats that even if the home runs and batting average hold up, may not completely hold up. He led the majors in plate appearances with 747, which is just an, which is just an, a, a nearly unbelievable number. Just playing every day, leading off almost every day, and at the top of a good lineup like that. So much has to go right for anybody to get over the 700 plate appearance level. And that plate appearance level, besides the fact that he was hitting really well, the plate appearance number also, you know, really propped up his you know, his runs at RBI totals. And yet we have to be we have to expect a little bit of pullback there. So even if you know basically everything went right in 2019 and if there's any pullback in the skills, if there's any pullback in the playing time, if there's any pullback in the team offense around him, even minor step backs in any of those areas make it harder for him to fully repeat here. So, you know, it's, it's really the classic case of regression is a powerful force and some Semyon should be expected to sort of move back to the middle of the pack a little bit. This is 2019, even though it was well skill supported, is probably, uh, you know, something of an outlier season for him or a career year. Yeah, when I saw that, the, one of the things that popped into my head was the huge amount of uh, plate appearances. You mentioned close to 750, in fact, the second most since 2011. So the, in the last 10 seasons, uh, that that's a lot of plate appearances, and you almost have to expect that something's going to happen that causes that number to fall. It isn't necessarily so, but when you look at the list of all the guys who amassed huge numbers of plate appearances over the last uh, 10 years, as I said, the only guy who repeats on the list is Trey, I'm sorry, is Derek Jeter. And Derek Jeter played a lot, and Derek Jeter's an outlier. Other than that, everybody's a one-trick pony as far as this very high plate appearance total is concerned. So the the skills can survive, and I think everything, as you said, about Marcus Semien's skills, plate discipline went up, contact went up, hard contact went up, everything went up. But the question is, if you apply it over, you know, uh, 10% even less plate appearances all of a sudden then 90 RBIs becomes 80 RBIs 120 runs scored which was amazing becomes 110 runs scored and so forth uh, another shortstop under Bob Berger's evaluation microscope was Texas shortstop Alvis Andrews uh, he bounced back to fantasy relevance last year 12 home runs 31 bags and he batted 275 the question is, again, is Andrus full value for this rebound, and can we expect more of the same in 2020? Yeah, Andrus returned a lot of profit for people last year just because after the injury plagued 2018, he was off of people's radar a little bit, and he rebounded with, uh, you know, particularly in the stolen base area. You know, he used to be a mid-20s stolen base guy and hung up 31 last year, and we all know how valuable those are in this day and age. And, and a couple of things beyond just the stolen bases that are nice is that he's not a complete zero in the home run area the way that, you know, say Malik Smith is. You know, he hit a dozen, he hit a dozen last year. He had hit 20, he had hit 20 in 2017, which seems a little... Uh, 
a, a little bit more than we would would expect. You know, we don't want to pencil them in for twenty every year, but the dozen last year is better than you know, for argument's sake, the you know, for comparison's sake, the the two you get from Malik Smith, another stolen, another pure stolen base artist. So you know, our, Andrews is not a pure stolen base artist. He you know, gives you a much needed boost in stolen bases, but comes with you know, good you know, good plate skills that don't have the playing time downside that a Smith has. Gives you the dozen home runs to at least sort of hold his own at that position. And is, you know, with stable plate skills and now at age 31, we get a little worried about continued stolen base output, but it, he could pull back from that 31 stolen bases level down back to, in a full season, the lower mid-20s level that had been sort of his career baseline and that's still a a very nice contribution in the category so you know from a team construction perspective Andrews was an interesting piece in drafts for me I did end up with him in a couple of leagues this spring and it ended up being that I would gravitate to him in round eight nine ten somewhere around there if I didn't get the stolen base foundation that I needed up the top of the draft. We've done a lot of talking in our strategy columns and the first pitch forums, both in Florida and online, about how much of the stolen base pool is concentrated in the first couple rounds of the draft or in the 30-plus dollar players. Once you get out of that tier, there aren't a lot of places you can turn where you can get A, a real contribution in stolen bases, and B, not take the negatives in the other categories that I was talking about with Malik Smith types a minute ago. And Andrews kind of is a unicorn in that sense, in that you know he plays a position where it doesn't hurt to roster someone who doesn't have a ton of power, and gives you those stolen bases, he gives you a nice batting average foundation. So he fit a lot of the teams I built this spring. And, you know, if we have a couple more drafts before opening day, I got a couple of teams still on hold. He's someone that, you know, depending on how my draft is flowing, there are certainly some permutations where he ends up on my rosters. One other factor that might affect Elvis Andrews's power output is the new park. We really don't know how that's going to play, but the general consensus is because so often the roof will be closed that the benefit that Texas has had in their home park over the last dozen years or so is that the air is dry and light or whatever. However that works, it's got something to do with it being very hot in Texas, and that helps home runs fly out of the park It'll be air-conditioned in there uh, for a lot of their starts, especially during the summer, and that might have an effect. And, Ray, I had a question that I'd like to ask you about the Elvis Andrews's record, and the, the thing that pops out at me when I look at it is his actual batting average tracks extremely closely to his Baseball HQ ex- expected batting average. 275 real last year, 272 expected. The year before, 256, 255. The year before that, 297, 289. Uh, the biggest gap between his batting average and his expected is about 13 points, and it's usually narrower than that. Is that normal for expected batting average versus real in Baseball HQ's measures? You know, it's a great question, and I, I think the answer is no on a macro basis. I think you see, you know, obviously you know, globally it should tie out, but player to player, I don't think you see anybody who's this consistent. The interesting thing about it, and I'm looking at his player profile now and this write-up that, um, this fact of Luke write-up, and it's not just in batting average and expected batting average. The same is true for home runs and expected home runs, power and expected power, and... I guess this is just a case where our metrics really capture quite well the 
the kind of player that Andrews is. He's not beating our met- metrics consistently anywhere. He's not falling short of them anywhere. It's just a profile that, for whatever reason, we're particularly good at measuring. So I guess in terms of confidence in the projection, we should feel pretty good about that, right? Well, I don't know about the projection because these uh, these comparisons that we're talking about are backward-looking rather than forward-looking. Um, but I think if we if we're confident that we're projecting the skills correctly, then uh, the the resulting um, metrics and expected metrics should line up pretty closely with the with the actual results. The problem here is that um, except for some some of the metrics in, in others of the metrics, Elvis Andrews's skills kind of bounce around quite a bit. You know, he he wa- his walk rate five seven ten eight six like that. His contact rate uh, has been well, that's been pretty consistent in the eighty mid eighties, and that's a plus. But you know, power index as high as 80, as low as 59, you know. So we look at this mishmash of skills and then you try to project it and you're, you know, basically kind of finding the middle point somewhere, allowing for age and what have you. So it could be, and I'm not saying it is in the case of Elvis Andrews, but it could be for an Elvis Andrews-like player that every year when you look back at him, the expected metrics match up nicely with the actual metrics, but that's not really a key to what's going to happen this year because his, his uh, underlying skills have seem to have a lot of variability that a lot of other players don't. Yeah. Maybe I can channel my inner Ron Chandler for a minute and say like, we zoom out a little bit from the, you know, the exact levels and the skills and, you know, use, sort of broad assessments to talk about what he does. He's a guy who makes really good contact for this day and age. You know, his, you know, his contact rate falls in the 83, 84, 85% pretty consistently. And we know his speed, even though it might move around a year to year to year is above average and he'll steal bases at roughly 20 to 25% of the opportunities he gets. And his power is below average, but if he gets a full season's worth of at bats, like you said, largely because of the, old ballpark, he'll get you 10 or a dozen home runs, then, you know, that's a, you know, there's going to be some wiggling in that profile, but that's pretty much what he is. And maybe in a given year, you know, a couple of errant gusts of wind will give him a couple home runs, or maybe he'll miss a couple of weeks with a hamstring and the stolen bases will pull back. But, you know, he's still, you know, there are error bars there, but, you know, but, but, but we basically know what kind of player he is. And I understand that. I, I'm just looking at a, a pair of years, say 2015-16, his real batting average 258 is expected as 266. He has, you know, these metrics for hard contact and contact and stuff. And so if you're projecting from that basis or the previous couple of years, which are pretty similar to 2016, you say, okay, let's expect another 260 batting average, a 260-ish expected batting average and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden he hits 302. And his expected batting average shoots up to 289, 23-point <laughs> gain in expected batting average. And these kind of things seem to be like w- just wild about Mark uh, about uh, Elvis Andrews in that he doesn't really maintain this level of skills, numerically at least. I understand under what Chandler says about the inherent variability of it. Maybe it is all within norms, and I, I'm pretty sure that it probably is. But then you also get a you know an outlier where you've got expected home runs for for Andrews in uh, well under ten because he's had you know five six three eight whatever the last few years and then in 2017 he hits 20 home runs and full value for them according to the according to the expected metric levels. 
Yeah, it's definitely wild. They are. You know, I don't mean to say these guys are robots that I can write down exactly what what they're going to do every year. They're, they're they're human beings, and the you know relationships between these things are interesting. You know, it's interesting how in the year when he hit three hundred two, like you said, and that was fueled by. Um, a BABIP, a hit rate that was you know the, the highest we see in this snapshot at uh, you know at thirty four percent. He was also that's also the year he walked the most. So we can't even say that he was just hacking and the BABIP gods were with him. He was actually drawing a few more walks than usual too. And you know, and, and it is interesting. But and yet his heart contact was down. So yeah, it is the, the interplay between these things. You can sort of you got to be careful because you can sort of see anything you want if you look at one particular metric and not the overall picture. Bottom line is, I think Elvis Andrews should be an interesting guy for a lot of fantasy owners. I suspect his ADP and and his auction value are going to rise because this kind of analysis is making its way around. I've seen other people saying, don't miss out on Elvis Andrews, thereby guaranteeing that uh, whatever bargain he was going to be starts to go by the wayside. Uh, Ray, Real interesting discussion, as always. I appreciate you taking the time, and we'll talk to you next week. Maybe we'll have more news about actual baseball. Anytime, especially uh, given current events. It's much more fun to talk about baseball, so let's, uh, let's definitely plan on it next week. All right, Ray, thanks very much. Thank you, Patrick. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and the three-minute warning next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, I want to remind you of a new subscription model at Baseball HQ called HQ Basics. Just $9.95, HQ Basics strips it all down. You just get the HQ tools and info you need for your drafts. The highlight is a brand new PDF cheat sheet for the game's most common formats. We've talked about that before. This HQ Basics cheat sheet is just the ticket in your standard 5x5 or points league draft because it's powered by the proven methods of BaseballHQ.com. HQ Basics will also include access to some premium articles from the site once baseball gets going again and Baseball HQ gets back onto normal publication schedules. But draft season's already underway. Don't wait. There's no better way to be prepared than with a subscription to the time-tested winning formulas of BaseballHQ.com. And now we've got three ways you can get that winning formula. I recommend the full season subscription. It gets everything in the Baseball HQ universe, including those Baseball HQ forums, which I just love. There's a draft prep season subscription, and now the new HQ Basics, just $9.95. What are you waiting for? Get on over to BaseballHQ.com and subscribe today. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the three-minute warning. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Tampa shortstop prospect Wander Franco. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Granny Hamner started opening day at shortstop for the 1945 Phillies at age 17. Gene Mock opened for the 1944 Dodgers at short at 18. Robin Yao batted ninth in the Brewers' opening day lineup at 18 in 1974. And, of course, Rogers Hornsby debuted in 1915 at 18. Do you see where we're going with this? Do you ever wonder about Wander? 
Of course, we're talking about 19-year-old Tampa Bay Rays shortstop Wander Franco, widely regarded as baseball's best prospect. A few weeks ago, it seemed implausible, if not impossible, to consider Wander Franco to be in the running to be Tampa's opening day shortstop. After all, the Rays currently have Willie Adamas, who batted two fifty four with 20 home runs and 4 steals in 2019. Not bad. So it seems pretty far-fetched to even speculate that a 19-year-old player who hasn't played a game above single A would open at short. That's why Wander Franco, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available late in your draft. Yes, even the notion of Wander Franco arriving in 2020 seems a little far-fetched. It certainly bucks conventional wisdom, but let's indulge the possibility or even the fantasy for a moment. Things have changed drastically for all of us in the past few weeks. Following the recommendations of the Center for Disease Control, Major League Baseball has pushed back the start of the 2020 season for at least eight weeks, or approximately two months. But there has been some talk about not having any public gatherings of 50 people or more until at least July or August. To be clear, we're not really sure what's going to happen. Nobody is. Along those lines, we hope you and your family remain safe. However, just for fun, let's entertain the possibility of opening day occurring sometime in July or August. According to Article 21 of Major League Baseball's Collective Bargaining Agreement, a total of 172 days will constitute one full year of credited service. So if the season were to start in July or August, or even June, unless the World Series was played over Thanksgiving weekend, Major League Baseball would likely not have a total of 172 service days. In other words, the later the season starts, the earlier the Rays could bring up Wander Franco in 2021, theoretically, and still be under his 172 service days. Signed in 2017, Wander Franco will likely need to be added to the 40-man roster by 2022, meaning he could see considerable playing time next year, and maybe this year. Still wondering about Wander Franco? So are we, as this week's Frequent Flyer. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for the three-minute warning, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about a way we could have a regular fantasy season that starts on our original opening day. Many years ago, I saw a post by an editor at a very prestigious newspaper on CompuServe. Gives you an idea how long ago this was, kind of like mentioning that I heard a song on Napster, only even older than that. And, by the way, if you've never heard of CompuServe or Napster, get off my lawn. Go socially isolate yourself. Anyway, I sent in a resume, they got in touch, and said they were interested. I think part of the allure was that the recruiting team could eventually brag they found someone in Regina, Saskatchewan, of all places, capable of working at a world-class newspaper. It would be like finding a major league caliber pitcher coaching high school ball in Brownsville, Texas. Quite a story. And if there's one thing editors like, it's a story. So, speaking of baseball recruiting, I had to do a tryout. They emailed me a package of five stories and asked me to edit them aggressively, they said. They also warned that the first story in the package was on a very esoteric topic and that I should just try to do my best with it, even though I probably wouldn't understand the details. When I got the package, that offbeat, weird, esoteric first story 
Rotisserie baseball. Ding, ding. Specifically, the story was about the baseball strike, and in the absence of actual stats, how some rotisserie leagues were using sims. They were getting artificial stats and using them like real stats to run their roto leagues. So what I'm thinking is, why couldn't we do that again? The simulations must have improved, since back when stats were created using Texas Instruments calculators, slide rules, and abacuses, there are already companies creating stats using real players and performance data to create artificial virtual performances. Those stats are used to create individual baseball games for guys in leagues playing head-to-head in simulation formats. Doesn't seem like a stretch to imagine a more general simulation of the entire 2020 season, and we could use those stats to generate stats for our leagues. And when the COVID crisis ends and the real players get back onto the real fields and start generating real stats, we could just stop using the artificial ones, switch over to the real ones, easy peasy. Oh, that job? Yeah, they offered it to me, but it all took so long that I managed to get myself into a relationship, we got engaged, and my fiancé, now my wife and I, we didn't want to raise a family in a big city far from home. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I have my three-minute warning commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio on Friday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 20th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 15 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our frequent flyer commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your three-minute warning commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating because that helps new listeners find the show and more listeners means we can keep the podcast growing and going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with another Tuesday Tout Expert Edition featuring Jeff Barton from Scoresheet Baseball. That's Jeff Barton on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Stay safe, wash your hands, isolate yourself, Try to have fun, and so long. Talk to you Tuesday. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.